This is a download from News Talk 106 to 108. To download other programmes or for more information, go to newstalk.ie. Talking Books on News Talk 106 to 108. lot about, well, should artists be married? Shouldn't their energies all be directed at the artwork? And so philosophers like Nietzsche thought that art making was a sort of sublimated erotic activity. In other words, that your sexual energy goes into the making of art. And so he thought that artists shouldn't just sleep around, they shouldn't have sex too much, because otherwise the energies that should go into creating masterpieces would be dissipated. And Ibsen wrote a play, When We Dead Wake, which has a sculptor hero, and he's terrified that even if he touches or so much as desires his female model, that he'll lose his genius and he won't be able to create great art anymore. Why do artists like and create self-portraits? And does Michelangelo's epic Last Judgment bear witness to the attitude and to the soul of the master himself? Hello, good morning, and you're very welcome to Talking Books on News Talk 106 to 108. I'm Susan Cahill. Well, I'm going to go all arty and crazy on you this morning. We're going to delve inside the minds and imaginations of some of history's greatest artists and look at the art of the selfie. Art historian James Hall traces the tradition of the self-portrait in his compelling new book, The Self-Portrait, A Cultural History. And in keeping with the theme of headbanging inspiration, we're going to look at the secret life of iconic artist Marcel Duchamp with Thomas Gerst, Head of Cultural Engagement at BMW. Thomas's latest offering, The Duchamp Dictionary, is a quirky exploration of Duchamp's life, yes you got it, in dictionary format. It's an hilarious read, hugely revealing, and I have to say, refreshingly original. This is a show about vanity and self-scrutiny, chance and contradiction, effort and eroticism. But first, is the Mona Lisa a Leonardo self-portrait in drag? The self-portrait has become the defining visual genre of our confessional age. But modern artists are far from the first to have exploited its power and potential. Well, art historian and critic James Hall's latest book, The Self-Portrait, A Cultural History, brilliantly maps the history of the self-portrait from the earliest myths of Narcissus and the Christian tradition of bearing witness to the prolific self-image making of today's contemporary artists. This beautiful book features the work of a wide range of artists, including Caravaggio, Gauguin, Giotto, Goya, Picasso, Rembrandt and Warhol. What's interesting about the self-portrait, a cultural history, is the fact that it looks deeply into the worlds and mindsets of the artists who have created them. This book is exquisite, it's comprehensive, it's vivid and wonderfully smart. 
James Hall is an art historian, lecturer and broadcaster and formerly the chief art critic of the Sunday Correspondent and the Guardian newspaper. James contributes to a number of publications including the Times Literary Supplement, the Wall Street Journal, the Art Newspaper and his books include The World of Sculpture, The Changing Status of Sculpture from the Renaissance to the Present Day and The Sinister Side, How Left-Right Symbolism Shaped Western Art. Well, myself and James had a great chat earlier in the week about all the compelling crazies throughout the history of art. I asked James about one of my personal favourites, Michelangelo, who always struck me as quite a restless soul. James opens up the book with a quote from the great master himself, who once remarked that any painter can paint a good picture of himself. Well, they believed in the, in the Renaissance that your characteristic would appear in any artwork you did. Leonardo said that a lazy painter, all his figures would look lazy. A devout painter, all his figures would have bowed heads, which is a bit ridiculous, but it basically expresses the idea that an artist character will appear in their own work and you'll be able to just look at an artwork and say ah that's a Michelangelo ah that's a Leonardo so in that respect it's true but it doesn't obviously mean that they'll paint a bona fide self-portrait and I laughed my head off when I read in your book when you describe Leonardo's Mona Lisa as a a self-portrait in drag can you tell me about that Well, this was an art historian in the early 20th century who was probably having too much psychoanalysis at the time. But he was taking the basic idea from that every painter paints himself theory. So going from what Leonardo himself believed, that the artist would appear in the work. And it also relates to the Narcissus myth. When Narcissus looks at himself in the pool, in the original Ovid story, he doesn't recognise is himself. And so various writers, to try and, and avoid broaching the idea that he might be homosexual, they say, well, actually, he, he thought it was a girl. So it, it's there in the, um, in the Narcissus myth as well. James, I'm very interested to hear how you used Vasari's The Lives of Artists to frame some of the key questions and debates that you bring up in your book. Yes, well, the, the genre of self-portraiture really takes off with Vasari. There'd been lots of self-portraits made before then, but in, in the second edition to his Lives of the Artists, published in 1568, each life was prefaced with a portrait of the artist and mostly a self-portrait of the artist. And in order to get these, with a lot of artists, for example, Giotto, who had died over 150 years before, there were no certifiable self-portraits. So what he did was he would look at any narrative fresco cycle and anyone who looked as though they were looking out of the picture he would think ah right that must be a self-portrait and claimed that Giotto had painted about three self-portraits so with Vasari suddenly the self-portrait becomes sort of central to the artist's identity and after Vasari you find lots of print collections of portraits of artists and self-portraits as well. And I know Montaigne and Descartes would have believed that the portrait revealed the closest or the most intimate thinkings of an artist, their dreams, their spirituality, whatever was going through their minds at the time. They would have thought that the portrait vividly 
vividly expressed the mental realities of an artist. Yes, well, it's interesting that that in, in this respect, art comes a long way before literature. Montaigne, in his essays, which are often seen to be a turning point in terms of autobiography and self-reflection and inwardness, he says that he's painting himself in these essays. So he's using that model that was um, you know, used by Leonardo and Michelangelo to justify what he's doing. And at one stage, he says that he saw the King of France being presented with a self-portrait by King René of Anjou, who was a 15th century king who supposedly was a painter. And so he sees the king being presented with this self-portrait, and he says, why can't writers do what painters do? Meaning, why can't they home in on themselves and talk about themselves and show themselves and their inner workings. Now, James Durer painted himself in a very attractive light, in a very commanding, authoritative, very assertive and very much expressing control and opinion. Whether there were other artists who actually painted themselves as older or more fragile. It's very interesting when you read your book how the different communications that different artists want to present about themselves. So it's all really about control. Yes, on the whole, in in the sort of early history of self-portraiture, artists um, show themselves young and in good health. In other words, in in their prime. Dürer painted three independent self-portraits. The the last one painted in 1500, he was he was about 30, and he didn't paint another independent self-portrait after that. And there's a sense in which that they believed that on the day of judgment you would be resurrected at the age of 33, which was the age that Christ died and was believed to be the ideal age. And there's a sense that people are painting self-portraits so that they look their best, both to be seen by posterity and also on the day of judgment. Now, James, in the self-portrait, a cultural history, you have some extraordinary reproductions of some of the most exquisite art through the ages. But your Caravaggios are absolutely amazing. And they're very revealing on his character, his temperament and the troubles he faced in his own life. You know, he suffered a bit with his nerves. He was very unwell all through his life. I know he had a big alcohol problem. And the pictures that you have here really reveal some very interesting insights to the world that he was engaging in, both internally and externally. Yes, a self-portrait as the sick Bacchus and another one where he shows himself as the head of Goliath, David holding his um, decapitated head. And the Caravaggio section appears in a chapter called Mock Heroic Self-Portrait, which is where artists are mocking themselves, not taking themselves too seriously. And, and there, there's a sort of penitential aspect to it as well. And I think with Caravaggio, more almost than anyone, um, he is showing himself as he was, as a sinner. So they're very interesting. Although he's always involved in um, fights and he killed a man and he was constantly on the run from the law, he doesn't actually show himself as a sort of physically strong or violent person. Far from it, the sick Bacchus, he looks almost slightly wimpish. So it's a very um, interesting sort of confessional aspect to to these self-portraits, that he's humbling himself in them. 
Now, I was particularly interested in Michelangelo's depictions of himself in The Last Judgment. Can you tell me about this? Because he crops up in lots of extraordinary creative ways. St. Bartholomew was flayed alive. He's one of the most important Christian martyrs. And Michelangelo shows St. Bartholomew not far away from Jesus Christ in The Last Judgment. And St. Bartholomew is holding up and it has the unmistakable features of Michelangelo and the features are very different to uh, St. Bartholomew. And Michelangelo wrote lots of poems in which he talks about himself being flayed alive and, and, and the idea of flaying for Michelangelo was related to relinquishing sort of worldly, carnal things and becoming spiritual. And so Michelangelo, by showing himself as a flayed skin, is suggesting, I think, that both that he's a sinner, but that he wants to purge himself of his worldly desires. And one of your chapters coming home into the 19th century, you have very curious stuff about Van Gogh. In the 19th century, artists became obsessed with rooting themselves in their sort of local soil, you get uh, the first one artist museums, a museum open to Jura in Nuremberg. And it's related to the rise of nationalism, the idea that an artist is shaped by their local culture and circumstances. And Van Gogh was very interested in, in, in the idea of trying to locate himself in particular communities. And this was behind his yellow house in Arles, and he invited Gauguin to go and stay there. And he wanted to create a community of artists who were sort of rooted in this provincial, largely agrarian farming community. And he collected self-portraits by other artists and hung them up in the in the yellow house and he and van gogh painted quite a few self-portraits when they were there so this was um, an, an attempt to create a sort of ideal artist community now i loved your chapter on sex and genius visually very interesting chapter as well as some of the background that you give about some of the portrait artists that you were putting forth you very interesting stuff on philosophers like nietzsche and how he looked at the idea of art making and its relationship to sex well the chapter sex and genius was the most fun to write and it comes after the chapter on van gogh and and this idea of trying to locate artists in a particular place and once they started doing that they started to get interested in the artist's domestic circumstances i mean van gogh was living with gauguin so it was sort of all male community but people thought a lot about well should artists be married shouldn't their energies all be directed at the artwork and so philosophers like nietzsche thought that art making was a sort of sublimated erotic activity in other words that your sexual energy goes into the making of art and so he thought that artists shouldn't just sleep around they shouldn't have sex too much because otherwise the energies that should go into creating masterpieces would be dissipated and ibsen wrote a play when we dead wake which has a sculptor hero and he's terrified that even if he touches or so much as desires his 
female model that he'll lose his genius and he won't be able to create great art anymore. So there are these extraordinary images by Munch, Lovis, Corinth, and Pierre Bonnard in which they are with their wives or lovers or mistresses. But there's this extraordinarily tense atmosphere and you don't know whether the woman is a muse or a vampire, whether she's going to foster the artist's creativity or destroy it. And that's what makes them so interesting. You can delve into them and change your ideas of what's actually happening. Can you talk to me a little bit about Picasso? Because he was quite a conflicted artist in some ways. He changed, he moved, and he had a very up-and-down relationship with the idea of self-portrait. Yes, when he was very young, he did quite a few self-portraits. So in that respect, it fits in with the pattern I said earlier about artists depicting themselves when they're young and in, in their prime. The most famous Yo Picasso, I Picasso, where he's staring out of us, drilling into us with his dark eyes. But these more or less stop when he starts working with Georges Braque and developing Cubism. And he almost goes to the opposite extreme. They identified with workers and they started to get very excited about the idea of anonymity. So even today, art historians can hardly tell their Cubist works apart. And this becomes a sort of driving force in the 20th century, the idea of getting away from the romantic I, this obsession with the self, and trying to become sort of more anonymous and at the same time universal. Now, one of my favourite artists of all time is the Mexican artist Frida Kahlo. And I can remember going 